Michael Inahosa has been a student, parent, teacher, and coach in the Dallas Independent School District. He's currently serving as its superintendent for the second time. Occasionally, he'll refer to his first term as Inahosa 1.0, suggesting an evolution, an even greater understanding of the city he calls home. Though not the one he was born in. No, actually, I'm an immigrant. I was uh, born in Mexico, Nuevo Laredo, Mexico, but we moved to Lubbock when I was very young. I was three years old, and we lived there for about six years. And then, actually, I moved to Dallas when I was in second grade. Okay. And so where did you start going to school? Well, that's a very interesting story, because when your parents are trying to convince you you're going to move to a better place, you know, they told us we were going to move to a two-story place, and there were 10 of us in the home, in a 1,200-square-foot in a, home in East Lubbock. And so we were moving to a two-story place. We were very excited. And so when we got here, it was two stories, but it was the West Dallas Housing Projects. It was not a house. And so right away... Uh, we were hit, and we lived in West Dallas, and I actually went to Thomas Edison when it was a K-8, and I was a second grader. We arrived in February, and West Dallas has neighborhoods, and West Dallas is La Bajada, Los Altos, Elmer Scott is where the projects were, and then Ledbetter. So when I was growing up, each one of those little areas were kind of known as their, their neighborhoods and their gangsters and all that, so I lived in Elmer Scott. And after our station wagon got stolen in West Dallas, my dad said, we're moving, moving to Oak Cliff. So we only lived in West Dallas for six months. And then my dad got us a rental home in Oak Cliff on Melba Street, um, right down the street from Reagan Elementary. Of course, now it's known as Bishop Arts. At that time, it was just Oak Cliff. And so we moved from West Dallas to Oak Cliff, but we went from the housing projects and the projects were segregated. Certain projects had Latinos in them. Most of the projects were African-American. So even in West Dallas, you know, certain recreation centers, at that time it was called Northampton. You know, the African-Americans went to that recreation center. The Latinos went all the way out to Ledbetter to JC Recreation Center. So even the neighborhoods and the recreation centers were segregated. By moving to Oak Cliff, they still had some old families. They were white families. And so that was still kind of mixed. And so I moved to Oak Cliff when I was in third grade. So I went from uh, third grade to seventh grade at Reagan. Believe it or not, Reagan had grade seven. So that's kind of my experience up to then. So then, let me tell you the big story. So and then, now it's August of 1971. I'm a student. I go to seventh grade at Reagan, but in eighth grade, I go straight to high school because at that time, Adamson was 812 for certain feeder patterns. So I go straight from elementary to high school. And in eighth grade, I'm the starting quarterback on the football team, I'm the starting point guard on the basketball team, and I'm the starting shortstop on the baseball team. I'm an eighth grader, but I play on ninth grade teams because I've had a lot of experience playing sports. So then the federal judge says, okay, 1954, Brown versus the Board of Education, Dallas. You've had 15 years, 16 years, 17 years to do something. You haven't done anything. So now this was August of 1971, and the federal judge said, you're integrating immediately. I was at Adamson. I was a hot shot at Adamson at eighth grade. And... All of a sudden, we get ordered that we are all moving. Students are moving, teachers are moving, because the district and the city and the powers that be had all this opportunity to integrate, and they wouldn't do it. So I don't know anything. I'm a kid going to ninth grade, and the federal judge blows everything up. At that time, there were no suburbs in Dallas. At that time, Plano was a small 2A high school. There was no Plano East, no Plano West, no malls. It was out in the country until that happened. So then the, I find out I'm going from high school back to middle school. So in ninth grade, I go to Griner. I go from high school to middle school. My class, my, it wasn't just me, it was my whole class. 
But it was kind of unique because Adamson at that time was 8 through 12, and they changed the high schools to 10 to 12, and they made middle schools 7 through 9 all at the same time they were doing this. And, by the way, the teachers also now had to integrate because previously there were the black schools, and they didn't know what to do with Latinos because Hispanic is really a term that was created by the federal government. It was created in 1970 by the Census Department. Before that, we were white, so they didn't know how to really calculate who we were. So, so some older Latinos, they had to go to Crozier Tech High School, which is now Dallas High, which is downtown, the building Jack Matthews has redeveloped, beautiful school. But at that time, it was Crozier Tech, so that's where most of the Latinos went, unless you were able to sneak into your neighborhood school because you were white. And now, though, everything changed. And so I remember, like if it was yesterday, I show up at Griner after I get over being mad about going back to middle school, or they call them junior highs at the time. I go up, Coach, Coach, I'm your quarterback. I was starting quarterback on the ninth grade team last year. I'm here. He said, boy, get out of here. He had a big old chew in the back of his mouth and spit it out. He goes, I got three quarterbacks, so I don't need you. And this was August. So as a macho Mexicano, I was so hurt, I ran all the way home so nobody would see me crying. And so I've always told people, it's not what happens to you, it's how you respond. At that moment, you know, I had the gangsters said, come on, see, see what they're doing to you? Come join us. We got a spot for you. You can be our captain. But instead, I decided to go. We live right by Kid Springs Recreation Center. And so at that time, we had, my parents had bought a house, still in Oak Cliff, but they finally saved enough money to buy a house. And it was um, over there by Kid Springs Park. And so I decided then to not let that issue overcome me. So I learned how to play basketball. I went to every gym, and then I ended up being the starting point guard on that basketball team that same year. And we went to the city championship and lost to Spence in the city championship. But that whole fall semester of 1971 was just like a blur. And I could have gone either way. And I was lucky that I had a lot of personal agency. A lot of kids that were my friends didn't have that personal agency. So they got taken over by the system. I persevered and I made it. I was confident and I was strong. But a lot of my peers didn't. And I saw them fall by the wayside. By the way, that's when suburbs exploded everywhere. Dallas went in the 60s and early 70s from 65% white um, to in the 90s and 2000s to 60% African-American. And now it's 70% Latino. And all the middle class is gone. The middle-class African-Americans moved to the south suburbs. The middle-class Latinos moved to Irving, Grand Prairie, Mesquite, Garland, everywhere else. The middle-class whites moved away. People still remember the fights on the forced busing. And what happened, I remember vividly kids from Pinkston, and these were my friends, and from Lincoln and Madison being forced to go to W.T. White and Hillcrest. And fights both ways, initiated by the whites and initiated by the blacks. Everybody was angry. And so the district decided, wow, this is not working out. So they came up with what they called learning centers so that these ethnic minorities wouldn't have to ride a bus 30 minutes to North Dallas. They created, quote, these learning centers where they would bring all these resources for equity in the local communities. And... They had mixed success. Uh, some of them did well. But anyway, all the raw emotions that came out, and I was right in the middle of it. Yeah. And so it was just interesting, and I lived it at the time. And now the irony is now I'm in charge of this thing. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, we're going to get to that for sure. But I, I'm curious as just like continuing through the rest of your experience. And then you went to Sunset from Griner. And... Was there that same sort of rawness? Did you experience that at Sunset as well? Or, I mean, what what was the racial makeup of Sunset at that time? I really don't know. I don't have the numbers, but what I recall, 
because we still had middle class family. If you look North Oak Cliff, you're not right down by Stevens Park Golf Course in Colorado, and there's this one house that one of my good friends, I always tease, he was on the baseball team, and his house had an elevator. So at that time, there was still a significant number of white kids that went to Sunset. I would say it was in my mind, it's about 30 percent, 30 to 40 percent. We had about 10 percent, 20 percent African-Americans and the rest were Latinos. Um, so that's what I experienced. But, you know, Oak Cliff always has had this inferiority complex. And so when I went to Sunset, a lot of the raw emotions of 70, 71, 72 had kind of dissipated by the time I became a junior, senior in high school. But I, I played on the basketball team, and I used to go to every recreation center, Cummings Recreation Center, which is right by one of our elementary schools. I used to go there. On our basketball team, we were pretty mixed. I was the only Latino. We had about five or six white guys, and we had about five or six African-American guys. But none of them had a car, and they came from all over Oak Cliff because we didn't have very good players. So if they wanted to play, they couldn't play at Sock. They couldn't play at Roosevelt. So they found a way to get a transfer. Back then it was called M&M transfer. When you're a majority in your school and you're going to be a minority in another school to incentivize integration, they encouraged those young people to go to Sunset. So that's where we got our African-Americans. But none of them had a car. I'm the one who had the car. So after basketball practice, I would drive all Oak Cliff taking all the African-American guys home after practice. Um, and we had a decent basketball team, but we couldn't compete with Sock, Carter. At that time, Roosevelt was huge. Pinkston was great. So we were, we were competitive. But in that district... You know, it was very tough. But I, I developed a lot of great relationships and got to mix with people different from me. The high school was not a bad experience. It was very diverse because we still had some middle-class whites from, from the Colorado Kessler Park area. But then you had neighborhood second- and third-generation Latinos, and then you had a few African-Americans that had transferred in to play sports. And so it was an interesting mix. And I didn't know what I was going to do till a teacher got me to apply for a scholarship for Future Teachers of America. And then that's a different story related to all of this issues about race and class. And so, uh, so I ended up going to Texas Tech. But my high school experience, I would not say it was traumatic like that ninth grade year. Tenth grade year was all getting to know these new people. It had calmed down by... 11th and 12th grade year. So by 1975, we were worried about disco fever, Friday night fever, Saturday night fever. That was the era. So you, you put it in the context of the times, and the music actually helped heal. As much as people dis disco, a lot, you know, white kids, Latinos, and African Americans liked it. So the music helped heal and bring us together at the time, you know, when there were some of the pop stars that helped us overcome the wounds that we had just uh, felt as we had gone through that. Dennis Rodman's mother was one of my teachers at Sunset High School. Dennis Rodman's sister was a better basketball player than he was in high school. She was 6'4", and she went to Sunset with us because she came with her mom. So those are the kinds of people I was around. Uh, so it's really fascinating to see how all this played itself out. That is crazy. That's awesome. So, so you mentioned how you got into teaching is a whole other story. I'd love to, to hear that story as well. Well, it was just this teacher said, you know, I want you to apply for this scholarship. Found that it was five hundred dollars. I said, so what does that buy you? Not much, but it, she bought me a dream that she thought I could be an educator. So I go to Texas Tech, and then I come right back because I want to teach in the neighborhood where I grew up. You know, I graduated in four years, and I came right back to Oak Cliff. And I was a teacher and a coach. And I taught one year at Stockard Middle School. And then I taught seven years at Adamson High School. And I was the head basketball coach. And I was the youngest head basketball coach in the history of Dallas. But that was also an experience. Because now, some of those teachers that taught me at Adamson when I was there in eighth grade were still there. But now, the staffs were integrated. All of my coaches' buddies, half of them were African-Americans. And they remember coming from the all-black schools. And I remember we would sit in the coach's office, and I was the only one that was in-betweener. 
So you had the old white teachers and coaches that kind of hanging on to segregation and why did this happen to us? And then you had the African-American coaches that were bitter about their attitude and they were bitter about their attitude. And I was the Latino guy and I was the young guy. And so I was kind of the bridge uh, uh, between them and amongst them because I got along with both sides. I got along with the good old boys, but I also got along with the African-Americans in every prof- mm-hmm. personal and professional setting. And I've somehow been the one in between. And this was as a young coach. And, and that's why I'm hopeful with today's young people, because the, to us older people that have gone through this, we carry this baggage with us. And for some of us, we've learned how to deal with it. Others still are very bitter on either side. And, and they've been in positions, and we've been in positions of power for a long time. But until this next generation takes over, people wonder, why does people go so crazy? But that's because if you didn't go through it, you don't have the context. And so it, I think it's been a plus for me to be the one that's in between all the time. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, talking about... The, how the white flight really ended up impacting so much of this. I mean, that's that's really, by the time you're back as a teacher, you're really starting to see that kind of mount. Did, did that, how did that affect your day-to-day, you know, dealing with the fact that you're losing students, different students have to come in to try and, like, kind of fill these gaps, schools end up closing. Did that Did that shape your experience as a teacher? A little bit, but I was kind of in a cocoon. You know, I just love teaching and coaching. I love being back in Oak Cliff, and I was a government teacher, so that's another thing that's helped me. I'm not a politician, but I understand politics. But it was interesting. At one point during that time, almost all the elementary schools in North Dallas shut down. They closed them. They shuttered them because there were no kids. They all went to Richardson. They went to Plano. They went to Carrollton. They went anywhere but Dallas. Then eventually... The Latinos started coming in and the families and our parents who built this beautiful city, who served this beautiful city, started moving into those neighborhoods. But if you go to almost every elementary school in North Dallas, predominantly Latinos, Hispanic kids with their families that live in those apartments and they, they don't live in those houses, but they go to those schools. And, but I even had a, did a presentation to the Harvard uh, Child Advocacy program at the Harvard Law School about three weeks ago. Everybody thinks this is just Dallas. This is not. I have a spreadsheet that I'm actually going to present to the board in uh, May. And as I presented to that group, the middle class has left every city in America. There are only two major cities in America that have more than 50% white and less than 50% economically disadvantaged. Seattle and Portland. Those are the only two major cities. When I tell people that Garland is bigger than Detroit Public Schools, they look at me like I'm crazy. Mesquite is bigger than Cleveland Cavaliers. Grand Prairie is bigger than Kansas City. Carrollton is bigger than St. Louis. You just go around the Metroplex and we have suburban districts in our county that are bigger than these big city districts. And Dallas is the only district that's over 90% economically disadvantaged, except for Cleveland. But if you think about Miami, it's Miami-Dade County. So it's like all their suburbs. So if we had the Dallas County ISD, that would include Highland Park and Garland and Mesquite and Carroll, but it's not. So we're the fifth largest city district behind New York, LA, Chicago, Houston, and us. So that's when the NAEP scores come out. People say, well, wait a minute, it doesn't make sense. You're doing well on the state test, but, then, but there's no regression analysis on the NAEP scores. It's just the kids that you have and how they do on these, on these national norm tests. So try not to make excuses. But when people don't understand the bigger context, and all of this was driven by white flight, then black flight, then middle class flight. And I used to tell principals when I was under in the hotel 1.0, because they'd have a lot of parents that come window shop. A former mayor asked me, you got your kids in Dallas schools? I said, oh, yeah. And they went to Harvard and Princeton. But that mayor never put their kid in our school district. 
And I have to tell the principals, look, they'll shop, but if they can't get beyond race and class, they're not going to pull the trigger. And that's why I think our new OTI program has so much promise. Because if you think about it, it's 50-50. No one wants to be the only white kid or the only Latino or the only African-American in the school. But if you have economic diversity, then a byproduct will be racial diversity. And this is why I thought that Koprowski's initiative was brilliant, where you actually socially engineer diversity. Um, and you can't do it by race now because the courts have ruled that. But you can do it by economics, which is tied to race. And so I study demography. I update my spreadsheets every year. To, and I see the trends and how this has all changed. And it impacts my work. But it's really been interesting to kind of watch this whole social uh, issue, um, and we're still dealing with other things as far as equity, but I know that's part of the next question. It, it, so in relation to all of these these issues, we're doing an equity audit, and we've passed an equity resolution, and what do you see as kind of the, the purpose of taking these steps? How would you state that? And then just what are you hoping to see on the other side of of passing a resolution and having these audit results come back? Well, part of it, I think the equity audit is the catalyst for change. And let me tell you why. Nobody's baby is ugly. So if you're going to describe your own baby, it's pretty baby, you know. But when someone else describes the really, the real truth and you find out where you have gaps, the only disappointment, we're going to present the equity audit this week. The only disappointment I ha I'm going to have in it, it we initially was supposed to be a mixed methods, both qualitative and quantitative. But because of funding issues, it only became a qualitative. So we're still going to get some rich context and issues and stories and and things about it. The disappointment is if it's not quantitative, then how do you really know about equity? So we've decided that this equity audit is the catalyst to make us make some significant changes. Because we've had a few anecdotes. Like we had one ED that was over a feeder pattern in Northeast Dallas. And then we put her in charge of the turnaround schools. And she'd always been in the Northeast Dallas. And if they didn't have technology, the parents would help them get the technology. But now she's in charge of the schools in sunny South Dallas. And they don't, there are really technology deserts, just like there are food deserts, just like everything else. And so, but that anecdote was not powerful enough. So we've created an office of racial equity. And in this office of racial equity, we're going to have quantifiable items. The other good news is that we've also doing a long-range facilities and technology master plan. So by definition, some of the stuff will be in there because we are walking every campus to look at the facility. We're going to every classroom to look at the uh, technology. So we're quantifying that in our plan as we go. And if one school has this, then this school has this, that doesn't mean they both do like this. That means we have to fill up this bucket before we go up together. And if you got additional resources, then you're okay. But if you got winners and losers and you only got uh, limited resources, then that's where the, the fights begin. Is, are you, what do you mean you're going to give it all to them? That's because they don't have it. Mm -hmm. um, but so this Office of Racial Equity is going to have not only information that we're going to compile about stuff like technology and buildings and programs like access to AP courses, IB courses, access to the good stuff, but also, you know, discipline, behavior, over-identification of students. And so their charge is to come up with a quantifiable identification of all the gaps. And then how do we start filling the buckets to level the playing field? Other districts have done Office of Racial Equity. We're slow to the game. Um, because for a long time in Dallas, if you talk, you were, there were fights and they were fierce about everything. When the new Black Panther Party used to show up at board meetings. And, and I think because people were afraid to talk about it because it was so volatile. But now I think people have come to an acceptance. And now we're getting a lot more young Turks who really want, and I tell people all the time, you go to the airport, you go to the mall, you see diversity. You're not in a bubble. 
So this is what the real world is going to look like uh, for the rest of their lives. Us old school people got to figure out how to make this thing work till we hand it off to the young people who are going to be in positions of authority in the future. So I look at things from this lens. I saw it from a student as a student before and after integration, and then I saw it as a teacher. Uh, and then as a superintendent, I've seen the remnants of it and the history of it. And very few people have been able to be on both ends of this spectrum. And others, how, how, could they, how, how did this get here? Well, if you don't know the history, and then others say, well, this is what they did to me, and that's all they remember. See, and so someone's got to be the bridge that's been on both sides of that. Another just quick question about your experience as a student and thinking about sort of like facilities and, and resources and equity. Did you see a difference in the resources that were available to you, whether it was technology or recreation or whatever, as, you know, a student at Edison and then at Reagan versus then once you're moving into Sunset and, and this integration push is starting to happen? Well, I always thought, you know, we always had the oldest and poorest stuff. You know, I, I do remember that. I mean, and when I played high school basketball, we played against teams in the suburbs, and they had these nice gyms, and we didn't even have bleachers in our gym, and all of us got thrown in one locker room. I thought it was just the urban experience, but I think part of it was the expectation and where you started. But even worse than that, worse than that, there was this, always this RO. You're from Oak Cliff. You're nobody. I only applied to two universities because I was – told that I was not going to make it. I applied to University of Houston because it was urban, and I applied to Texas Tech because my sisters went there. And and I got in both, and I decided to go to Tech for familiarity. I didn't think I could get to UT. Well, I ended up getting a four-point UT Austin for my doctorate because effort creates ability. You get smarter through hard work. If you really have a growth mindset, then things can change. The narrative can change. But I was, you're just from Oak Cliff. You'd be happy with University of Houston and Texas Tech. I vowed that if I was going to get a doctorate, I was going to get it from a tier one institution because I wanted to break that myth. And I wanted to break that cycle. But I never had a chip on my shoulder. I always felt that inside. But so I could get along with everybody, I never really articulated it until I was in a position of authority where I had a little bit more credibility with my comments. But it, it was even worse because it was the level of expectation. Now, because of our, uh, of our P-TECs, we got 800 kids that have said they'll go to Sunset High School, first, second, or third choice, to be part of that P-TECH. We had 800 kids, and I was in high school trying to get out of Oak Cliff. Now they want to go to Oak Cliff because of what we're offering, a free college education and a partnership you know, with an industry partner. So to me, it's just been surreal to see that. And so a lot of times we don't know how words can damage expectations and so it's not just about the stuff it's about the emotions it's about the discipline if you tell a kid that he, to read out loud and he can't read what's he going to do he's going to act out and then you're going to kick him out because he just acted a fool because he can't read and he doesn't want everybody else to know he can't read so those are the kind of things that we don't even think about that put our kids into hostile situations that other people just take for granted. And if you've never worked in that environment, you can really make some fatal mistakes uh, about how you treat students and how you treat adults. Yeah, absolutely. What, what was the inspiration to move from, uh, you know, being a teacher and being a coach to taking sort of this next step into educational leadership? It was all actually by accident because I didn't, I didn't want to leave teaching. I love teaching. I love coaching. In fact, high school, my high school coach said, Hosa, you're short, but you're slow too. I said, thanks, coach. That's very inspirational. He goes, but no, you're the smartest kid I ever coached. You're going to be somebody. It's just not in college basketball. So when I was coaching and I was the youngest head basketball coach in Dallas, all I ever wanted to do was coach, but it was actually accidental. I was dating a young lady, 
And, she, and I said, man, when are we going to get married? She goes, I'm not going to marry a coach. Why don't you become an administrator? So I went out and got me a job, got me a suit, shaved. I said, babe, how you like me now? And she dumped me. So it, it never works out. The way you, it's not what happens to you, it's how you respond. But actually, that was the best thing ever happened to me. I got into administration. I started seeing how things work. I'd had some good, hardcore experiences. I had some personal agency. And then my career, I went from assistant principal to assistant superintendent in four years. I was a superintendent by the time I was 36. Uh, so, so it was kind of by accident. But then I was amazed that when I first went to El Paso area as a superintendent, someone asked me, this was in 1994. They said, so what do you want to be long term? I said, I want to be the superintendent of Dallas. I said, I can't believe I said that. Because it had seven superintendents in 10 years, and one of them went to prison. I said, I mean, if they can screw it up, I can do that bad. I can do better than that. And as it turns out, I'm superintendent of Dallas twice. Um, but it just kind of how it happened. I remember one, I was superintendent outside of Austin one time, and the Dallas job came open again. And I got people called. I said, no, I'm not ready. I'm not ready yet. You know, this is a big job. This is a big job. And if you're not ready, it can take you down. It's taking a lot of people down. And so I said, I'm not ready. When I'm ready, then I'll go after it. And so I needed another job that was bigger, higher profile, until I felt like I was ready. So it's all been kind of by accident. And it's just been, you know, and never really had direction that way but it just kind of worked out and then coming back is another story you know just but it's one of those things but you know I love this city and I love this district and that's why I do what I do and these experiences have molded me to be able to handle the intensity of this position I mean, to me it's just I don't know what else I would do you know so yeah. you know having had experience at all of these different levels and different sizes of school districts you know what what is it about, and obviously the size has a lot to do with it, and probably the racial equity stuff all kind of factors in there as well, but what is it that is unique about uh, the Dallas School District and kind of the city of Dallas? What, what, what is different about working here than anywhere else? A couple of things. Number one, I learned when I was superintendent in one district about this leadership triangle, that the students are in the middle, at the top is the board, and they're very diverse. Over here is the staff, they're very diverse, and over here is the community that's very diverse. But in a lot of those communities, um, there's not always a lot of different diversity. But check out my, in Dallas, I have nine board members, three black, three white, three brown. They're all smart. I have three attorneys, two that have an MBA from Kellogg School, another one from UT, another with master's from Harvard, and then our two African-American board members, they put in a lot of time. They're very smart. They may not have the degrees, but they work, and so they're very smart. So everything is tri-ethnic with my board. And then we actually, people don't know this, but our staff's tri-ethnic. If you look at our, our data, we have about a third, a third, a third. And then if, if you look at our kids, we're, most, we're only 5% white. But the community is tri-ethnic in every way, whether it's the chamber, whether it's the advocacy groups, whether it's, you know, anything else. And so I think the difference is that Dallas is a lot more like a northeast. Dallas and Fort Worth are so close, but they're so different. In every respect, Fort Worth is where the West begins, and Dallas is much more like a northeastern-type city uh, that you see. And if you're not prepared for that, then it, it's very difficult to manage. And if you don't pay attention to those kinds of issues, like if you're going to make a recommendation and you don't have thought of that, I think that's what makes the job so different from any other city, um, is the tri-ethnic balance of all of those stakeholders. Absolutely. Well, and then there's also the added layer of how something like a housing policy, you know, the new one just came out of the city of Dallas, how much that ends up affecting things like efforts to try and desegregate schools. So, you know, you mentioned being familiar with politics and you're not necessarily a politician, although I think some people may, may disagree with that even. Um, but it, it, the awareness that you have to have 
of things that are outside of the your purview, your authority as a superintendent, but that still end up shaping what it is that you have to do in your job. Things like that are coming out of the city of Dallas or out of the county or, you know, out of even some of these suburban school districts. How, how do you manage and balance and sort of keep your finger on the pulse of all of those things? As well? well, you have to have a great team and I do have a great team and they help me. But as the CEO, you have to look at everything. Just like initially when we were losing enrollment, we all thought different things that were the catalyst. But then actually we started studying. Yes, charter school was the biggest one. But also birth rates actually had an impact with the recession in 2010. And there's a bubble of kids that are smaller and it's going through everybody. So if you don't pay attention to birth rates and then gentrification is another big issue. Every school that is in jeopardy of closing because they're under enrolled has really been driven as much by gentrification as it has by um, the charter schools. Um, in the North Dallas High School feeder pattern, all those rental homes and apartments have been taken down and replaced by 600 square foot apartments that only certain people can afford, and they're not going to have families. And you don't need to just go with your hunch, you know. In God we trust, and everybody else bring data because you gotta, you have to look at what are the data points that are leading you to other conclusions. And I got the board to turn on a dime to let me close a couple of low enrollment schools because now we have a market of 4,000 families that want to come to our specialty schools. So we ha I had to put the board in a tough spot, but I know that I only have these applications right now, and these students are our lifeblood. And if I don't pull the trigger now, those 4,000 applications aren't going to be here next year. So we had now we're going to open up a new Montessori and a new personalized learning school. But I put the board in a bad spot, but to me it was worth it because if I didn't, I would lose an opportunity to recapture part of our market share. So you look at your goals, you look at your ideas, and then you do risk-reward analysis with your board, and then you just hope they're with you. And then if they don't support you, they don't support you. Then you back off and try something else or come back next year. So that's a very specific example. Housing policy drives the gentrification. And so that impacts our world. And if you don't have a professional demographer, and if you're not doing an environmental scan, and if you're not doing, you know, the same thing with our collegiate academies on the positive side, we found out that you can get a job in education, IT, uh, medical industry, and manufacturing. And so that's where our pathways are for these jobs, and that's why we have 66 industry partners. If you're not paying attention to what the community's telling you, you're gonna miss those opportunities, or you're gonna make fatal mistakes. And so you have to pay attention to those external elements because it impacts our world. Absolutely. So you mentioned funding in regards to the audit, uh, the equity audit earlier, um, and not necessarily having enough to even do as robust of an audit as you would have liked to have done. So really then on the other side of starting to get some of these results back, what is the strategy for making sure that some of the, the changes that need to occur in some of these, uh, you know, allocation of resources are as equitable as possible in regards to the funding for it? And then as like a second part to that question, what are maybe some of the changes that don't necessarily even have a cost implication, but are more just sort of a fundamental philosophical shift that needs to occur? Yeah, I think you have to have an unrelenting high a focus of high expectations. Uh, just like people didn't expect me to go to anywhere except U of H or Texas Tech. And those are both great schools, but there were so many other options. And, that, and that's what we do by some of the practices that we employ. But also, you know, I've also learned this by watching the legislature and watching if funding is a zero-sum game and you got winners and losers, and then the winners are happy and the losers are mad. And in our business, your friends come and go and your enemies accumulate. So every time you make a tough decision, you make somebody mad, you got another enemy. By the way, I was a basketball referee for seven years, so I'm used to everybody yelling at me. And you got to have a thick skin. You got to keep going, even though someone's disagreeing with you and yelling at you. You can't take it personally. Otherwise, you'll wilt in this job. But so then there's not only equity, but there's adequacy. And so sometimes you just have to go for as many resources as you can get. And you have a much better chance of success 
if you have new resources to deal with these issues. And certain things you just got to bake into the baseline budget. Now, one of the ways we've had some success is that we funded our strategic initiatives first the last couple of years. And then we only gave great teachers a salary increase. But my great principals didn't get an increase. My team didn't get an increase. Our secretaries haven't gotten an increase. Nobody else has because we funded those strategic initiatives. But if we had additional resources and you fund your strategic initiatives and you take care of your people, then you got a much better chance for success. And you got to make, I got to make a decision. What do I build into the baseline budget? And then what do I put up for grabs? And so those are the high stakes recommendations that I end up having to bring forward. And I always got to find a way to get support from the board because ultimately there are democracy is an ugly thing, but it's the best thing going. And I, I can't I don't have absolute power. I have to go prove it up to my school board. And if they can't support it, then I got to come back with something else they can support. And so that's what makes the jobs a, a little bit more complex than what people might look at should be easy to handle from the outside. We've taken a peek at the, this, this week's agenda, and we, we saw that a, a, the TRE, 13 cent, will be recommended again. Do you feel like we're making progress on, on getting that supermajority that we need? We'll see, but I'm, I'm not giving up on any of the board members. I'm not taking anything for granted either. But I've also listened and we've also owned this this one, and we've taken into consideration, because one of the board members who's a fiscal conservative said, okay, if we give you all the money in year one, what are you going to do next year? And you still have strategic initiatives, and you still won't give. So I think part of what's in this plan is, you know, we have figured out a four-year plan, and we have listened to the board members. And, you know, if we have less kids, we need to have less staff. Cutting staff is very difficult to do. But if we're going to make campuses cut staff, then Central has to cut staff at a higher rate. So we've listened, and we're coming back. And we'll try it again. But, you know, you only get three strikes in baseball. The county is 0-2. And and I just don't know what this pitch is going to look like. So I'm going to give it my best effort. And hopefully we can convince a supermajority to invest. And because the cavalry's not coming, the state's not going to help us. As you well know, property value growth doesn't benefit us like it does the city and the county. In fact, it kind of hurts us. So we got a chance. But I don't want my legacy to be the bankruptcy superintendent, that I cut our way to the bottom. You know. I just can make a pitch for resources, and if it's not there, it's not there. So we'll see what happens. I think it's a hybrid. I think there are some things. I'm used to being a superintendent for 23 years, most of them in Texas. We knew that if you got this law passed, then the rules were written by this month, and then you knew the rules of engagement, and you knew how to go forward. There have been, you know, maybe because there's so many new people at the agency, they don't get the rules out fast enough, and we can't implement it fast enough. But let me tell you this, even with the high stakes nature of some of these things, I am very confident to predict that we're down to 13 improvement required schools and that by next year we'll be at less than five. I can predict that because we've actually closed five of those. And if they make it, they get to stay open on three of them. But if they don't, they close. And then we, we're making enough that we can predict we're going to have success. But we actually don't even know where the goalpost is. It's like if I went to Jerry Jones and I said, I want you to hire a blind kicker because we don't know where the goalpost is. So right now, depending on how they set the cut points, we could have zero improvement required schools or we could have 10 brand new middle schools that are improvement required because we haven't been told what the cut points are. And for us, we've taken care of it because any school that's IR four or five, we've closed them. So we don't have a problem with state takeover. Houston has 10 schools. Five of them are high schools. And if they don't all make it, and of course their governance issues are a little bit more pronounced than ours, so the stakes are very high. So to answer your question, it's a bit unusual. Now, one thing the commissioner has said to his credit, that once they set the goalposts, they're not moving them for five years. That would be great and a relief. 
But then we have two more legislative sessions in those five years, and it may be out of his control. Uh, anything could happen. So we're not time to whine about it. You just got to deal with it. And so, so you make your best estimate, best prediction, make your best decisions, and then you try not to leave too many things to chance. There's like any IR5, the board supported me on that. And if you look at the votes, most, almost all of them were 9-0, and a couple of them were 7-2. Um, so it just depends on what the stakes are and how big they are and what before you, know, you can make some big decisions. I'm curious, in, in your, of course, copious free time, if you've had a chance to follow what's going on with the uh, Public School Finance Commission down there in Austin, and if you had any thoughts on something you'd like to see come out of that, but sort of just even more generally, what, in a kind of ideal world, some legislation you would like to see out of Austin that would really benefit an urban school district like Dallas, as opposed to so much of what's coming out now seems to be sort of hindrance. Yeah. Well, I've been watching it. And in fact, I've testified once and my team has testified a couple of times. They could do one thing, but they won't do it. It would be very simple. If they just took this recapture money, $4 billion that the state uses as revenue for the general fund, if they just took some of that money and increased the basic allotment, it would raise everybody up and Houston and us and Austin would be out of recapture and and. Every district would benefit by raising the basic allotment. But that means taking some of that $4 billion and putting it in education that's collected by property taxes. I don't think that's going to happen. What I think is going to happen is there may be some opportunity to set up some funds and they're going to incentivize the behavior that they want. If you think differently about strategic compensation, they put a dollar, some funds available that you could apply for. You're not requiring districts to do it, but if you want to do it, here's a resource. If you believe in certain turnaround models and you want to apply for some funds, I believe something like that may come out of this, but then it's got to get approved by both both chambers and assigned by the governor. But I think that has a reasonable chance. The other one would help everybody, but I just don't see them rating that $4 billion that they get that they use for transportation and health care. I mean, they're not wasting the money. They're using it for other state purposes. But it's being collected as school property taxes. So we'll see. But there's never a simple answer to what's going on. Yeah, no kidding. Any, any just last thoughts, something that you would like people who may not have visited a Dallas school, what are some of the misconceptions that you would like to address about where you work and, and these schools? Well, you know, I, all three of my boys went through Dallas schools, one elementary and two, uh, two went in secondary schools. And you can grade, get a great education in Dallas, but you got to be able to look beyond race and class. And, and, and if we have the opportunity to bring back the middle class, that's great. But if not, we still can get a great education. And the fact that so many of these people have partnered with us and you can get a um, with, between the Dallas County Promise and our collegiate academies, you won't get all that debt. And then a lot of these community college kids, they stay in this community. They don't run. You don't have a brain drain of these kids going somewhere else. So I would just want people to give us a fair chance. And, you know, some of my board members get mad when we get a negative press article. It is what it is. And but you just can't you got to be in this for the long game. And that's what unfortunately sometimes superintendents come and stay for three years and then there's constant turnover. Being in it for the long game, you know, we want this not to be a tale of two cities. We want everybody in this city to prosper, the businesses and the families. And, and, and we deal with people's two most prized possessions, their money and their kids. So people get very excited about this stuff. But I think that we're headed in the right direction and we don't apologize for our demography. But we have good kids. If people come, it's amazing. Every time we do principal for a day, it's almost unanimous. Well, this is not what I was expecting. Wow, these are good kids. And wow, this is a good school. More people need to have that epiphany, I think. And I think we'd be better off in the long run. That's awesome. Do you see any big differences between, you know, you mentioned some superintendent turnover and, you know, you've been here now in two different sort of eras. Are, are there any big differences in your current tenure than there were from the last time? Just about everything. <laughs> but it's not my district. I mean, I have to take the context that the players changed, the situation changed, 
not only internal but external players changed. But I learned this a long time ago. I was in a young superintendent's academy and the facilitator raised, you guys are nothing but a bunch of hired hands. What? I'm a well-trained professional educator. I beg your pardon. He goes, no. He goes, raise your hand if you're going to retire in the district where you're superintendent right now. Out of the 35 superintendents, three raised their hands. Now, the board members, they usually retire where they serve. So we just sometimes think because we're well-trained professional educators that we know best. Well, it's not our district. It's their money, their kids, and their schools. And so you need to be adaptable to the context that you're hired in. And if I make it to the end of my contract, which expires in December 31st of 2019, but who's counting? If I make it that far, I would have been the longest-serving superintendent in Dallas since integration, since I was a kid. Before that, it was bankers and lawyers who were on the board. And so the only three people would have served longer than me, period. And that would have been W.T. White, uh, uh, Crozier, and uh, J.L. Long would have been the three that have served long, longer than me. So stability helps because every time a CEO change, thing, any corporation, there are going to be changes. It doesn't matter. If the CEO changes, going to be changes in strategy and staff and everything else. So stability is more important, for, especially for a long urban district that has suffered. Now, there are some urban districts like Long Beach. They've had three superintendents in the last 35 years. Very high-performing, poor kids, but they have a strategy. They implement, and they go the long game. And that's what's missing in life. I'm, I've been back almost three years and out of the 15 largest districts, I have the second longest tenure. And I've only been back three years of all the 15 largest districts in America. So, I mean, what does that tell you about the nature of the, of the job? You think you're going to retire here now? I think so. You never, but I love being a superintendent so much. That the one year I was retired, I hated it. But I don't know where else I would go. And I love this community, but you know. So I'm only one mistake away from them not wanting me, so it's kind of out of my control, so who knows? The Miseducation of Dallas County is powered by the Commit Partnership and produced by me, Joshua Kumler. It is executive produced by me, along with John Hill, Catherine McKeska, and Rob Shearer. Mixed and mastered by Will Short. Music by Trevor Yakochi. Special thanks to Dr. Inahosa and his entire team up at DISD Central Administration. You can read a full transcript of our conversation at our website, commitpartnership.com. This podcast is dedicated to educators everywhere. The future is in your hands. We'll be back soon with more Miseducation.